All right. Uh, welcome to the Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast. And today I have a very special guest. I have Greg Kaminsky, who I recently heard on the Glitch Bottle podcast. Big shout out to that podcast. Pretty sure everybody who listens to this probably knows about that one. So um, yeah, I would like you to uh, introduce yourself for people who don't know about you and sort of how you initially got into um, the Western esoteric tradition and occultism in general, and then maybe a little bit about how you've been diving into Vajrayana Buddhism for the past, you know, quite a while, I believe. Sure. Thank you. So my name is uh, Greg Kaminsky. Um, I have been interested in the occult and esoteric I don't know, for probably a little over 20 years, maybe, maybe 25. I don't know. At that point, it kind of lose track. (laughs) It's been a while. (laughs) And at some point along, I mean, I've always been interested in it, even from like as a child, not even being knowing what it was that I was interested in, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. You could give it many names, but ultimately it's some kind of longing to understand the mystery of existence. And that longing just grew and grew and grew as I got older. And uh, somewhere along the way, I started doing the uh, Occult of Personality Mm -hmm. podcast Mm -hmm. and really enjoying exploring all of the subtleties and nuances and histories and personalities involved in Western esoteric traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, Just exploring tarot and alchemy and Kabbalah and ceremonial magic and Freemasonry and seeing the connections between all of these things and at some level what they were aiming towards, at least ostensibly, um, which is to me, this idea of gnosis, which, you know, it's not just an idea, but it is mostly conceptual at this point. Um, And so that's really kind of my trajectory, I guess you could say, is, uh, is kind of exploring these topics, these subjects, these arts and traditions from both an outsider perspective in terms of like studying it academically, as well as like an insider perspective in terms of a, being a practitioner. And I think that has, it's been quite a journey, I guess. Um, I mean, there's a lot more I could say about it. Um, aside from a cult of personality podcast, I also have another uh, website podcast, Chamber of Reflection, which is a lot of like continuations of the podcast interviews for a cult of personality but it also features a lot of unique presentations and discussions and 
conversations and research papers and whatnot. So it's a, it's a bit more diverse, but it's definitely more in-depth for more serious spiritual aspirants, I guess you could say. And um, I don't know. And my life has kind of taken on a similar trajectory in terms of, I don't know, anything you could call a career, which I, I don't. But um, <laughs> like my my days consist mainly of reading and writing spiritual books, websites, podcasts, just doing spiritual practice, uh, getting some teachings if I'm lucky, and just focusing on the same things I've been focusing on for a while, but just with more structure and more guidance, I guess you could say at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, from the previous podcast, I heard you on, it sounded like you were more focused on the Vajrayana path with the practices and um, fully absorbing into the worldview. So uh, you mentioned that you're writing a lot of material and doing practices are, are they, is this like a mix of Eastern and Western practices or, or are you uh, primarily focused on the Vajrayana path? How's your current, um, current practice and your current writings look? Yeah, I mean, I'm focused on the Vajrayana path, but I mean, also, like, I think there's dimensions of my contemplations and sometimes practices that are not completely Vajrayana, like, mm-hmm. um, I guess one example would be like doing like Gurdjieff style practice of like self-remembering mm-hmm. or like contemplating teachings of like Rebbe Nachman of Breslov or like Christian mystics. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly Vajrayana in terms of the methods and the practice and the view, certainly, but it's not like totally one dimensional either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think my writings is really mostly focused on the same sort of thing as I've been focusing on with the Praneus book, which is uh, Nongdro, these pre preliminary practices of Buddhist Tantra. But I'm also finishing up a book with Anathema Publishing that's going to be coming out in the near future that has to deal with um, Renaissance philosopher Giovanni Pico della Mirandola and his Christian Kabbalah and angelology. And um, so, I don't know, I kind of still keep my foot in the Western esoteric waters and I always will because I have a very strong connection to all of that. And I still, you know, do tarot readings and Mm -hmm. study the symbolism. And so it's not, I don't know. It's just every person's unique. And and I've had like a kind of a winding path, you could say. Oh, definitely. I think I uh, share similar sentiments, kind of having, uh, feed in both worlds, you know, it's all part of, part of the human experience, so to speak. But 
Um, at the same time, uh, there are some key differences in perhaps worldview of different traditions, right? And so um, maybe you can share a little bit about what, what worldview or what's the difference in the worldview and practice of the Vajrayana practices um, as opposed to or in comparison with um, like the Western occult tradition? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I know what the view of Vajrayana is because mm -hmm. it's articulated and fairly clear, even if it's not completely understandable. See, I could say it right now. The view is reality is simply the divine mm -hmm. coming to know itself. And, you know, you can elaborate on that, but that's like the essence of it. In terms of Western esoteric traditions, I mean, I think it really depends on which specific tradition you're talking about, you know, because Christian Kabbalism is going to have a different view than Jewish Kabbalism to some extent, simply because they're different mm -hmm. faith traditions. Um, It's, I don't know, I, I feel like this is, a, this is a difficult point because if Western traditions more fully considered and articulated their view of reality, mm. then they would be more discriminating and discerning in terms of the methods that are employed to make that view real or to realize it but they don't. And that's an issue. And this is the same, this is no different than the issue of no living masters. I mean, you might find some in Jewish Kabbalism or Islamic Sufism or in certain Christian esoteric schools, but not in Freemasonry or not, you know, a world renowned tarot creator and reader and not in ceremonial magic unfortunately but also these traditions they're i don't know one of their goals might be gnosis but it certainly doesn't seem to be the primary goal so i think that to me that's the real difference between spiritual paths is and it's not an eastern or western difference it's just a difference between traditions that exalt wisdom, meaning Gnosis is the primary and really only goal. And they have a living master that teaches the students because seemingly that's the only way to really make it work. And even then it's barely workable. So to me, that's, that's really the essence of, of what the differences are. I mean, I mean, I love Western esoteric traditions and I still do, but I'm not really under the illusion that I'm going to encounter wisdom there and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, I think what's unique about Vajrayana in my exploration so far is it's a very clear roadmap like very clear practices. I mean, there are, of course, it is esoteric and there are things to juggle and um, 
it's not like 100% easy to understand or anything like that, but there is a clear set of instructions and a clear roadmap. Whereas sometimes in the Western esoteric tradition, in certain traditions, there might be a similar striving towards gnosis or worldview, but I feel like it's a hodgepodge of like mixed instructions that leave people confused because the terminology isn't necessarily, uh, the ter terminology can be easily confused and it's not as clear cut, I guess you would say. So it doesn't, maybe the goal is perhaps gnosis, but it sort of leaves people confused more than, you know, on track, I guess you would say, at least that's what I've seen and um, experienced to a degree. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't believe, and I've never experienced anyone who's attained gnosis from reading a book or doing a ritual. It's always been under the guidance of a, well, someone who already has done it mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. is a teacher. And those are not the same thing. I mean, enlightened teacher, teacher. Like, because you could have someone who's attained gnosis, but doesn't know how to teach another to do it. And so where are you then? Like, you're nowhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe you can show I, a little I, bit. Oh, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, it's all right. I just think, I think that's, to me, that's really the most fundamental point. It's not so much that the words can be, misconstrued or lead people astray it's that it's impossible to actually understand it unless you have someone sitting in front of you who is living it and can explain it to you and that's not just like one time because we're human and you know we're going to need like repeated like repeated different ways and to ask questions and to test it and really to un understand it over time and this just not possible to do that without a living teacher i wish it were i, I mean <laughs> it'd be much easier mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it, it's not the case as i've come to learn okay maybe you can share a little bit about um because you're talking about having a living master living teacher um, and that implies, of course, that you have one, right? And so maybe you can share a little bit about um, how you found your teacher and the relationship uh, between you and your teacher. Um, yeah, so I had interviewed a guy named David Hyam Smith, who's also been interviewed on Glitch Bottle a few mm -hmm. times. And he was always talking about this non-emanationist view, this like Kabbalah that was non-emanationist and like non-theistic. And it sounded really weird to me. <laughs> and, but what he was saying were things that were very similar to what I had read in I Am That, the talks with Nisargadatta Maharaj mm -hmm. where, where he's basically talking to people who come to visit him and trying to speak to them from the state of gnosis essentially mm -hmm. and so the fact that 
David was speaking to me like that, I was like, something, this is, I don't know where he's getting this, but this is not like what it seems to be. And so I like kind of asked him about his teacher and like what the situation was. And he basically like, I don't know what you'd call it, kind of put me off and just was like, oh, he doesn't accept students. And, you know, I can't even tell you who he is or anything. So I just kind of accepted that for many years. And then eventually I had uh, Lyme disease and got sick. And at one point I was complaining about it to him. And he said, well, maybe now's a good time for you to come meet my teacher. And I was like, this has been like nine years at this point. So. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I waited a while. And then when I, I finally met him, I pretty much knew immediately because he was saying all the things that I'd like been intuiting, but didn't really understand. And, but he could also explain like, like the nature of reality in a way that I could actually understand it. Mm. And to me, that was like completely mind blowing and still is to this day Mm. because, um, It's, it's like a level of, of understanding that's completely sublime. And I couldn't even begin to express like exactly how much it has affected me. Mm. So, you know, it's like a kind of at that level, but I mean, if you encounter someone like that, you, you know, it, and it's pretty obvious and Mm -hmm. it it kind of settles all questions. Right, right, right. Um, Was it basically just on off the first um, meeting, the first impression you were sort of immediately like, Oh, this is it. It was like an intuitive sense that, um, this is somebody that I need to study under. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And, don't, and I mean, at that point, I've talked to hundreds of teachers mm-hmm. and not just esoteric teachers. I mean, teachers in academia and, you know, all sorts of mentor figures, you know, mm-hmm. in the religious domain. So, I had a sense of what most of those people had to offer. And this was entirely different. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. One key concept. So we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, non-dual awareness and non-emanationism. And um, one key concept in Buddhism in general is the concept of shunyata or emptiness. Right. And so, yes. Can you share a little bit about what, it's almost this non-conceptuality, right? Like what is shunyata? What is this emptiness they're talking about? And uh, what does that imply in one's worldview and practice? Well, emptiness could be also understood as openness. Mm -hmm. 
or no thingness. So, I mean, this is, I think, certainly a sort of a non-experience in meditation if one reaches a certain point where you kind of get pulled into this nothingness state where there's no you or me or God and there's no time nor space or anything really at all. There's no things. And um, this is also, I think, the origin of what is termed apophatic theology or the via negativa, mm -hmm. you know, where, where the divine is unknowable and inconceivable and ineffable. And um, this is, emptiness is really, you know, also related to the interdependence of all phenomena mm -hmm. in regards to the fact that uh, nothing is independently existing on its own, it doesn't arise as itself. And that can be understood intellectually uh, but it can also be understood in meditation in this nothingness state. <clears throat> so, I mean, it, it sounds simple, but this, this openness or this nothingness um, is also completely full of all potential because all appearance arises from it. Mm -hmm. So, it's like that saying about the, it's the emptiness at the heart of the bead that allows you to string them together to form the mala. Mm -hmm. So it's the emptiness of reality, this nothingness, no thingness that allows all appearance to arise in its myriad forms and all its beauty and horror. I think I think the uh, I think the overall concept of shunyata or emptiness is sort of a mind blowing. It's it's hard to deal with, I guess you would say, right? For a lot of people, and uh, it's like you're conceptualizing the non conceptual. I think that's what a lot of people get kind of stuck on as well, right? Well, yeah. I mean, on some level, you know, the, this that is the nature of mind is mm -hmm. emptiness or this openness, and I think it is troubling because on some level we intuit, even if we don't fully confront it, mm -hmm. that the reality of emptiness means that there is no you like the you that you, that we conceive of the self is completely conceptual is not real in any way. And what we think of as our body was never ours to begin with. And so kind of confronting this is like, well, then who am I? Which is exactly the right question. Because <laughs> you're nobody at all. Right, right, right. Right. There, there is no um, uh, ultimate self that is, you know, 
uh, inherent of existence that's not dependent on everything else. So yeah, the, the ultimate concept, I think that that, that that concept alone sort of runs opposed to a lot of theology or worldviews in general, right? And that it's kind of a big game changer, I would say, well, for sure. I, I mean, I would not say that it runs counter to most. Mm -hmm. I would say it actually runs congruent to almost every esoteric tradition that I've looked at. It's like really serious, mm -hmm. you know, because yeah. if you look at like Meister Eckhart, like he was expressing, like, I can't know God, but I can be God. Or mm -hmm. that the same eye that God sees me is the same eye that I see God. You know, it's one eye and one heart and one love. I mean, he's expressing this same exact non-dual realization of emptiness and nothingness. Same with like Marguerite Perrette, you know, and she said, you know, my true nature is nothingness, mm -hmm. right? And she's expressing this sort of Gnostic viewpoint of I am no thing. There is, there are no things. Mm -hmm. It's all just the divine coming to know itself. So mm -hmm. this, this sort of view and this realization of nothingness has, has also been at the heart of many, if not all, like true, authentic spiritual traditions that exalt wisdom, because the nothingness is where the thingness arises from. I mean, ultimately, we're denying thingness altogether, but it's, these are very subtle points. And the important part here that I think to me is that, you know, a lot of great spiritual masters have expressed this exact idea. You know, Rebbe Nachman talked about this idea of self-nullification, which is the same exact thing as was the realization of, of emptiness or nothingness. So, I, I mean, I think it's wonderful and but it's also, it's, I, I can understand why people wouldn't want to embrace it because it, it really means the end of any kind of specialness or individuality in a way that can be cultivated and like self-centered thought can like revolve around. It completely obliterates that. Yeah, definitely terrifying for the ego, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it makes the ego see that egoing is an activity that is a habit, and that's all it's doing. It's There's not even an ego. Yeah, it's very powerful, very strong. Um, okay, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, you met your teacher your master. Um, however, there are uh, practices. You talk a lot about, um, I, I don't know how to exactly pronounce, is it nondro? Is that how you say the preliminary practices? Uh, yeah, nondro. Yeah. Nondro. Okay. Because it's spelled with the N-G. So 
So yeah, the, those <laughs> Tibetan transliterations are pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. I'm actually fluent in uh, Korean, and so every time it's funny because if I read things in Korean, I know exactly how to say them, right? But what's funny is when I see them written in English, uh, I don't know what it's like. I don't know how to pronounce this because I'm not sure what they like, what letter they mean when they use certain you know combinations and what have you. But um, it's kind of a similar thing, but anyways, um, yeah, you mentioned a lot about Nundro and the preliminary practices. Um, are these something that one can start to do on their own, or would you say that oh, you no. need a teacher or yeah. initiation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need a teacher and the initiation both, mm-hmm. okay. but that's not impossible. I mean, it, it is, if one were suited to it and authentically wanted and was prepared to do it, then it, it would be possible to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. But yeah, you can't just start doing it yourself and expect that, number one, you would actually be able to accomplish it. And number two, even if you were able to physically perform the practices that you would get you wouldn't get any benefit from it because you don't have the blessing from the lineage holder who has not only accomplished the practice but holds the sort of the key to transmitting the empowerment that would allow your subtle body to be affected by the practice in the way that it's supposed to be. Um, what, what are some of these key practices? Maybe you can share with the listeners. What, um, what are some of the key practices of Nundra in general? There's four major practices that include refuge, purification, mandala offerings, and guru yoga. Uh, the refuge practice consists primarily of refuge prayer and performing physical prostrations. And then the purification is, uh, involves the deity Vajrasattva, mm-hmm. who is the deity of purification, and you vi- do visualization and repeat his mantra. And then the mandala offering is basically uh, prayers and um, using a mandala tray and colored rice to make offerings of basically everything. Um, And then the guru yoga is a six-day retreat with a specific set of visualizations and mantras and additional practices that allows the practitioner to basically what we would call a tongue tip taste of the enlightened state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If just for a moment or two and the repetitions for all of these practices is 111,111. And ideally it should be done in less than three years. Um, I mean, actually that's not, that's, that's like the, the minimum, but ideally if you could do it on retreat, 
you know, in less than a year, maybe that would be the ideal, but that that's a different sort of person than you or I probably. <laughs> right, right, right. I know a lot of schools, um, they, uh, they say to do it 111,111 of uh, all of these, right? Including the prostrations, the Vajrasattva, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The mandala, so, yeah, the mandala the for yoga. you personally, and the guru yoga, yes. For you personally, you went through all of these um, practices, is that right? That's right. How, how long did it take uh, you as a, you know, a Westerner, not a Tibetan living in a monastery, you know? Yeah, it was uh, two years, but, I, I, but I was, I was practicing like during the day and like, yeah, I was doing it as much as I was able to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And it that, still that's... took me a long time. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I had to start over actually at one point. Mm, why is that? Um, well, when I started the Nandro, I was living in Massachusetts and I wasn't making much progress. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Michigan to be closer to my teacher. And then I, I really had to start over because the, the rate that I was going, it was just, it wasn't really working well. Mm-hmm. Like you, re- oh. you really have to do a significant amount of practice every day to really get the benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So people who are interested in these sort of practices, as you mentioned, you know, it's very important to have a teacher, um, a lineage guru, um, for somebody who's really interested, how, how can they seek out um, a teacher or somebody in one of these traditions? Yeah, that's a tough one because, mm-hmm. like, I, I, I kind of stumbled on my teacher and he is the right teacher for me. Mm-hmm. And he's the right teacher for some other people too, but he's not the right teacher for everyone. And Mm. I can't really tell you how to go about finding an enlightened master. (laughs) I was barely able to do it myself. And I don't really know how it happened. It was, I mean, if I look at it from my perspective, it was like dumb luck. So (laughs) I might not be the best person to ask. Uh, I mean, what I can tell you though, and this I'm fairly certain of, mm-hmm. you know, that saying when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yes. That's not true. That's a bunch of crap. But what, <laughs> but what is true is that when the student is ready, they will know how to find the teacher. Okay. Yeah. Like so that's that, yeah. that, that I know for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I like that. Uh, I like that take on it for sure. That's a good one. That's that's not even mine. That's that's my teacher's. So I'm okay. I'm ripping it off from him. But, <laughs> but I don't really. Everything I'm saying is is his like teaching. So mm-hmm. nothing. If I'm not come, none of this is my material, right? All right. of this is things I've been taught, and so it's important to to recognize that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
So you don't think that I have any wisdom or understanding. So <laughs> you don't need to bother me. <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and these practices, like the teacher that I've connected with, um, they do always point back to the, you know, the masters, uh, uh, you know, Padmasambhava, Milarepa, the whole lineage as bringing through the blessings. It's not uh, of their own, so to speak, right? Yeah, I mean, if you could even conceive of the tremendous sacrifice and heroic nature of the practices that these, you know, that, that Guru Rinpoche or Padmasambhava mm -hmm. accomplished, uh, it's only through his blessings and grace that any of this is even possible mm -hmm. so of course we pray to guru rinpoche and do guru mantra and and we know that he hears it and responds and answers prayers so yeah that's definitely um a crucial aspect of not only of vajrayana but any true authentic spiritual path or tradition has a, a a lineage and the lineage holders are they they embody that tradition that's that's where it resides and that's how it comes about so mm -hmm. it's very important no most definitely um in general uh in tibetan buddhism um there are there are some shamanistic or sort of magical practices, I believe, right? Have you come across any of this? These sort of like, oh, uh, because oh, pre yeah. previously there was like the bone tradition, right? Um, yeah. And so are, do those, do these sort of magical practices or shamanistic practices play a role in, um, in Vajrayana? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Without okay. a doubt. You could, mm -hmm. I don't think you could practice Vajrayana without magical acts and protection and mm -hmm. you know yeah i mean it's like every kind of magic you can encounter is, is employed for sure for sure that's been my experience so far as well compared to um here in korea most of the buddhist schools in fact i think over 90 percent are zen and um in contrast with vajrayana it's you know quite different in practice right <laughs> because zen really focuses on zazen or sort of like vipassana sitting still whereas um that and breathing right whereas of course that's important in vajrayana as well but there are a wide array of practices and technologies that i can only really describe as like magical or tantric right yeah i mean i mean if you really get into it like the primary practices of vajrayana are the generation phase deity yoga mm -hmm. and then the the completion phase yogas mm -hmm. but the generation phase deity yoga is really the primary thing that most practitioners are doing and that involves visualization of a deity mm -hmm. that may or you know could be simple or complex depending on the practice and then repetition of the deity's mantra. And then that's like enclosed within a sadhana practice. 
and that you know that has various aspects to it but that's really like the the primary thing so in, in within the generation phase deity yoga mm-hmm. the you, as you get into the actual technicality of the practice you have this thing called the three samadhis and these are three sort of stages of the deity arising or what would be visualizing the deity when you're starting out mm-hmm. and in these three moments if you will they correspond with moments in the sadhana of the visualizations they correspond with states of being in terms of one's meditative accomplishment and level of awareness and it also corresponds to you know moment of death the bardo and then moment of rebirth in terms of purifying those for you know that when that actually happens right Mm -hmm. you know you're really that's what you're ultimately practicing for is those moments so you can recognize what arises is no more real than anything else it's not it's not actually real at all it's just it because what happens according to what i've been taught is like when when the luminosity arises from the openness nothingness this is the same emptiness we we're talking about earlier right where this luminosity arises and it can go one of two ways the way it usually goes is we f- perceive ourselves to be a subject in a world of objects mm-hmm. right that's what we are but it can also go another way which is a sort of recognition of the appearance and the the perception of it are not two they're mm-hmm. the same and that there's no subject object it's all one or none as the case may be right so yeah it can go two ways it usually mm-hmm. goes you know subject object but it doesn't have to Mm-hmm. And so if we can go the other way at those crucial moments of death or bardo in between or the rebirth, we have the capacity to it in some way transcend it, that, you know, but this is all kind of difficult for one who, you know, doesn't remember it or can't imagine it um and so you know we oops you cut out uh can you hear me yeah i can hear you okay you just cut out for probably about 10 seconds it's okay it's okay all right okay um yeah i think that's what's that's what's quite interesting about uh vajrayana tibetan buddhism is that a lot of these practices are aimed or sort of focused on the dying process right so you have like dream yoga you have uh these emptiness or disillusion of elements meditations and there 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 are a whole array of practices that 
are almost aimed at, you know, achieving enlightenment um, or holding holding onto the clear light, basically, right during these different um, phases of death. And uh, you know, they use they use the sleep process, the meditation process. Um, it takes a, a variety of approaches to sort of stabilize these this awareness, either in this yeah, life. Well, I mean, they use they use every every approach. Right. I think that, right. that's part of like that's why Gurdjieff called it the fourth way, because it's not this mm-hmm. way or that way or the other way. It's all of them at once. Right, 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 right. And that's how Vajrayana is. It doesn't just do the way of the yogi or the way of the yani or the mm-hmm. way of the bhakti. It does all of them all at once. Mm-hmm. And so right. that's what the sadhana is. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's an opportunity to do the devotional, to do the contemplative, and then to do the yogic. And by yogic, I'm talking about like the visualization and the technical aspect of the sadhana and everything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's a unique in the fact that it's sort of a practice for death throughout the waking state, throughout the sleeping state. You know, and then of but, course when death comes, yeah, or at least you're always yeah. reminded of that process. Yeah, right? absolutely. Whereas but in I'm a lot also... of traditions, it kind of it. Uh, I mean, it's like death is coming someday. Whereas there, it seems like there's a constant. I mean, it's not it's not an escapist thing that's coming later, so to speak. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you're trying to affect a a death, you know, prior to the actual death. And that's, and that's what that going into that emptiness state in meditation is. Mm-hmm. It is the dissolution. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, but I would also say, like, it's a joyful practice, and it brings about joy and states of bliss and wonderment. And so it... it in some ways it, it might seem counterintuitive or paradoxical to like be practicing for death, but then being joyful and happy and <laughs> right. all the time, but it, it's just how it works. I don't know. I mean, I don't understand it. It's just how it is. Right. 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 Uh, that's pretty funny. Um, I was having a conversation uh, maybe yesterday or something. And the only way I can describe like these practices, the emptiness so, so one can say, yeah, but is this like a null? Is this sort of like zoning out? Well, I feel empty when I'm, you know, eating Cheetos and uh, spacing out watching Netflix, right? But I, I think no, that, it, it, I think there's a characteristic of like dullness versus sort of a heightened, you know, a bliss and a, a heightened sense of awareness, I guess you would say. I don't know. I mean, for me, mm-hmm. emptiness, that's... Uh... I don't know that that there's no person that can have the experience of emptiness because emptiness is empty, right? It's right. even empty of emptiness. So, <laughs> right. And, and there can't be a Greg who's like knowing the emptiness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Cause it's empty, right? It's, right, there's right. no things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's no thought, there's no identity. There's no time or space or location or there's li- nothing. 
but yet I, like I said, it's, it's openness in the sense that there is the potential for all that does arise in appearance. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's it. Yeah. I think, I think one approach too, is that they, um, at least in the tradition we're talking about, they, they uh, almost emphasize like the use of desire or bliss towards oh, yeah. the recognition of emptiness rather than the denial of it. Right. It's sort of a vehicle, I guess you would say. It can definitely. be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, that is the main point of these practices is they bring about intense states of bliss mm-hmm. and what I would call like a Gnostic intoxication. Mm-hmm. And that, and that is not the goal of the practice. That is, it, it's a method mm-hmm. that you then like bathe the body mind in this nectar of bliss mm-hmm. over and over and over again. You may ask yourself, well, what's the point of this? It seems hedonistic and indulgent. Mm-hmm. Well, if the if the bliss and the Gnostic intoxication was the goal, then it would be. But that's not the goal. Mm. Uh, we take, there's a, a line in one of the sadhanas. It says, the sole remedy for being's suffering is bliss. Mm. That's good. And that's it. And so the sole remedy for being suffering is bliss. And so we cultivate bliss through spiritual practice as a way to know joy and happiness and the fact that one can feel good Mm -hmm. literally for no reason at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other so- than other than their feeling devotion and longing for the divine, right? Definitely. Yeah. Some of the um, the sadhana or liturgies are quite beautiful too. Like, I ask for a you know a a rainfall of transforming and blessing energies, and you know some of it just is very beautiful to even read, even if you're <laughs> even almost oh, from yeah. a, a literary perspective, not even necessarily from actually experiencing it too right no it's completely sublime i mean that it it would and this is how these practicing these sadhanas is able to literally change one's state of being by doing it Mm -hmm. it's and it has that power what is the the they say the words of uh enlightened being are not just speech they're you know they have spiritual power and it's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of backtrack a little bit, you talked a little bit about like guru yoga and like Vajrasattva. So some of these practices um, almost involve like melting the guru or the, the deity into yourself, right? So do maybe you can explain a little bit. Is there a, do you see a huge difference or do you see any similarities between like Western esoteric practices of invocation this is actually a listener question by the way um are are there is there a big difference between like western practices of invocation versus these uh vajrayana practices of kind of you know it could be guru yoga or working with deities um i think there's significant differences Mm -hmm. 
Um, one is again, like being empowered by the lineage holder to do the practice. And so there are, there are changes to the practitioner's subtle body as a result of the empowerment initiation, as well as a result of doing the practice itself after having received that initiation. So that's a significant difference. Um, I think the other difference is like, just in terms of like what traditions are being worked with, mm -hmm. because some traditions are living, like certainly Vajrayana is a living tradition with, in, you know, living enlightened teachers and uh, practitioners doing intense practice every day. Uh, and devotional offerings and like a wide array of activities to support this. But other traditions are not really still living. And mm -hmm. yet people will work, and I use that term delicately, with uh, deities from these traditions that, you know, they, they might be practiced in a marginal sense or they might not be practiced at all, depending on what we're talking about, because, mm -hmm. you know, people could be invoking like Sumerian deities. Well, mm -hmm. that tradition has been dead for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. uh, the Egyptian tradition, well, like there might be like reconstructionist or revivalist movements, but do we even know how they really practiced it? I, I don't, mm -hmm. uh, Greek traditions, like certainly Greece has been a Christian country for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So like, you can't, you can't really envision these deities as having the same vitality at this point. And I, and I don't mean to make this into like some sort of crude analysis on different deities from different traditions comparing and contrasting. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to express the idea that um, not all traditions have the same level of, you know, current devotion and, and practice. And so if you're working within one that is like tremendously alive and I, to me that the difference is palpable. I mean, I've done both mm -hmm. and the difference is for me very palpable. And, you know, I would never say to anyone to not do what you're doing or that it's somehow not correct or that it's wrong I, that's not it that's not it at all it's really just a recognition of sort of the context of one's spiritual practice mm -hmm. okay i have a uh, another listener question as well um what do you think about uh people who mix traditions uh for example you know, mixing, I don't know, golden dawn rituals with uh, Buddhism or in, in, mixing sort of uh, Did religious Did you just make medical. that up? 
Uh, no. Does somebody, anybody is anybody really doing that? I don't know. Somebody sent me that. <laughs> so, um, I mean, do you think that? I mean, I, I obviously you said you're not going to say you know what someone's doing is wrong, but would you would you say that? I I I, I doubt that you'd recommend doing that. But um, here's what I would say: yeah. if you if you're just starting out, if you mm -hmm. are new to spiritual practice, mm -hmm. you should definitely not be mixing traditions and practices at your whim, like it's some sort of spiritual smorgasbord. Mm -hmm. That's insulting, I think, to people who are really devoted to these traditions. However, if you've been on the spiritual path for a while, and you've done different paths and are familiar with different traditions, and Maybe you've had some level of accomplishment in them. If you want to mix and match stuff at that point, like who the fuck is going to tell you not to? I'm sorry. I, maybe I shouldn't be speaking this way on your podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. I like I'm, it. I'm a coarse man. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh -huh. But really, like at that point, like who the gives a shit? Like, do what you want. Like, you've earned it. Right. And and here's another thing. Like, you already mentioned in your question about Vajrayana and magic and shamanism. And, like, what spiritual tradition isn't syncretic? Mm -hmm. Right? I mm -hmm. mean, they all are. I mean, if a spiritual tradition is really effective, they're going to take anything that works and adapt it to their own use. I mean, mm -hmm. Christian esotericism, for crying out loud, is resting on a basis of Jewish Kabbalism. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'd say I don't always really advocate just doing whatever you want, certainly. And I, I'll continue to call it a spiritual smorgasbord. I think, honestly, like, syncretism in that's done well is is more beneficial and helps people ultimately. I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I mentioned earlier, I believe, in the podcast, or maybe before we started recording, that I just picked up your book, uh, "Pronounced Reflections on the Preliminary Practices." A Buddhist Tantra from a Western Perspective. Maybe you can share a little bit about uh, the book, what inspired you to write it, and in general, who is this book written for? What kind of person should pick this up? Um, so the book is really written for people who are interested in Buddhist Tantra, but they're not interested in culture or sort of like diving into it from the, the Tibetan cultural perspective mm -hmm. in terms of reading books written by Tibetan teachers. Now, there's nothing wrong with those books. And on some level if one is an advanced practitioner they're going to have to read them and you know derive some benefit from them but 
as a Westerner who's familiar with Western esotericism and Western philosophy, I felt that I was at least able to convey the essential elements of the view and the practices and the result well enough that it would be beneficial and maybe could reach people who might be interested, but were sort of didn't have a good introduction to it to, to really get an understanding of what it was, why one might be interested in it, what the benefits were, you know, all of these things. So I, that's who I'm addressing is, is Westerners, Western esoteric practitioners who might be looking for a spiritual path that could actually deliver the goods on Gnosis. Okay, great. And mm -hmm. so the reason I wrote it is my teacher asked me to write it after I finished Nongdro mm -hmm. because he is, he's a Westerner and he teaches Westerners. And in order to be able to reach Westerners, he has to, I think, at least approach them on the level, you know, where they're at. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, certainly there are Westerners who are already interested in Buddhism, mm -hmm. but this is not, this is a very esoteric path. So, you know, maybe it, it would be good to get people who are already interested in esotericism and have some level of experience and understanding with that. And so that's, I think, kind of what we're aiming towards. And, um, I think, I think the book is pretty effective at conveying it. I mean, you'll you you'll have to be the judge when you read it, but <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah, it sounds very interesting, and um, uh, I kind of glanced through it uh, last night, and I planned to start it today, but um, I did notice the reviews are incredible. Um, I bought it through Amazon Kindle, and uh, I was just browsing through the reviews and. You know, they're all like five stars. Everybody's very um, enthusiastic about it. And um, I think that a lot of people did kind of relate that it made it relatable using sort of different examples that um, and quotes that Westerners um, can relate with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. I uh, again, there's nothing against the books written by Tibetans about their own tradition um, they do it very well but they do it in a style that is very impersonal for the most part mm -hmm. and doesn't speak to western philosophy or use western examples to illustrate the points mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and so the other part of what I'm trying to do with this book is express that on some level, Gnosis is not divided by East and West. There's Gnosis in all authentic religious traditions. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, this is a, a, a delicate point because when I say that, I'm excluding you know, Freemasonry, ceremonial magic, tarot, alchemy, what have you. 
from this because there's not gnosis in those traditions despite my desire for there to be okay um are there any so you did mention earlier that you are working on a new book um is is that coming out soon is there a timeline for that if people want to check it out yeah, so the book is um, is coming out through Anathema Publishing Limited. It's I, I apologize, I don't have it in front of me, but the title mm-hmm. is um, I you know I'm, I'm blanking on the title, but it involves Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, mm-hmm. his Kabbalah, his angelology, and um, and this idea of gnosis and sort of his quest for the perennial philosophy. And um, it should be coming out probably sometime in the fall. Mm, okay. But if you check the Anathema Publishing website, they'll have updates. And I think it's going to be open for pre-order very soon if it's not already. Okay, that and, sounds great. Um, mm-hmm. I should tell you also, this book is based on my thesis for my um, degree in medieval studies at Harvard. And Mm. um, I got a lot of uh, great feedback on it. And it's, I think it's, it's definitely worthy of reading if you're interested in the Western esoteric tradition, if you're interested in Christian Kabbalah, if you're interested in angels, if you're interested in the way that a Jewish esoteric tradition was adapted by Christian philosophers in a very beautiful but bizarre sort of um, act of appropriation. That sounds very interesting and obviously very well researched. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I spent years researching this years and I got a lot of help from my thesis advisor, Dr. Kimberly Patton at the Harvard divinity school. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, it was a quite an experience, a real revelation to, to read the, to be able to write this and, and research it. Okay. Yeah. Your book sounds really interesting. I really look forward to checking it out. And uh, I know it'll probably I'll get a notification about it through uh, Foolish Fish, who <laughs> seems to find out when everything's coming out. <laughs> exactly. So, um, well, that would be great. I hope I hope he does. Yeah, hopefully it, uh, he'll feature it on there. huh? But um, yeah, I think this has been a really um, great conversation. And uh, it was really a pleasure talking with you. What, where can people find you? We mentioned you have your podcast and um, maybe you can share with the listeners uh, about your podcast, websites, or any way that they can um, correspond with you or find you. Great. Thank you. So uh, yeah, occultofpersonality.net or occult of personality, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we also have our membership section at chamberofreflection.com. And my email, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, is brothergreg at protonmail.com. I'm also on Twitter, Cult of Personality, and Facebook and Instagram. But 
uh, email's probably the easiest if anybody actually wants to get in touch and ask any questions or what have you. So I really enjoyed talking with you, Ryan, and I apologize it was so difficult to get together, but I'm glad we finally did because it was really great to talk with you. And uh, I look forward to hearing this when it comes out. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'll uh, include all the links that you mentioned in the show notes. And uh, yeah, maybe when your uh, next book is uh, getting close to coming out, maybe we can have you on again if you're up for it to uh, discuss yeah. a bit about that too. That'd be great. Yeah, cool. I'd love to. That, that's a whole different topic, but mm-hmm. ultimately leads to Gnosis too. So it's it's very, very interesting historically. So I'd love to talk to you about it. Yeah, that'd be great. It'd be a good uh, contrast with this one as well. Okay, cool. All right. So uh, thanks for coming on and until next time. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right, cool. Take it easy. Have a good night too.